Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. episode 76 we keep kicking it down the road man i'm telling you i'm telling you we're gonna be we're gonna be another year in here in another uh another 60 days or so it's amazing well we're not alone again tonight evan mccallum's back by popular demand yes absolutely (laughs) really that popular yes and we listen we got apparently yeah we got numerous uh comments on having you back and what i love is that Evan's playing through the pain tonight, which, you know, <laughs> pretty impressive for a modeler. Well, we'll let him start by telling what's been up in his model sphere. Well, my model sphere has been uh, I don't know, pretty light for modeling adjacent things. Uh, I had some dental work, which is always fun. So that kind of puts a drain on your mojo. But I mean, you get some time home from work, so you get some bench time as well. But just been plugging away at some builds and... Uh, kind of making progress doesn't really feel like much progress towards a bunch of shelf queens and everything. So, yeah, it's modeling <laughs> though. So it's fun, right? <laughs> uh, have you been working on any videos? I know you dropped a couple right in a row there. Uh, have you got a couple others in process? I've got like four or five videos that are coming along but all these projects are like frozen because they need aftermarket and the aftermarket has to come from the czech republic or hong kong or something so it takes four weeks and then i have to start something else and then it needs aftermarket and then i have to wait and it's everything is in aftermarket limbo right now um, but i finally got the aftermarket for my t34 that i talked about in the last episode so i can get back to working on that thing well when are we going to see the next track video Oh, uh, <laughs> it's never going to happen. <laughs> well, two two of the ones I ordered finally showed up, and then Def Model announces <laughs> 3D printed tracks. Yay! <laughs> oh, my God. At some point, you're just going to have to say, okay, there will yeah. be an episode three if, if, that, if more come out. But, you yeah. know. I mean, at this point, I'm just waiting for the Panzer ones to show up, which should be any day now. And then I'm just going to do the next video, and then everything else will be have to be will have to be the third part because it's just getting ridiculous. When I started, there were like twelve track companies. Now there's probably twenty. Well, what about you, Dave? What's been up? Well, actually, I've got to say the my model sphere has been pretty good. As you know, we've talked previously. Uh, attended the Cincinnati show, found some kits on sale, and found a book I was looking for. Uh, so I've already started reading the book. Work has lightened up just a little bit. So that's given me a little more time to do modeling adjacent stuff. Not at work. No, I'd never do that at work. Just, just <laughs> never mind. Uh, so all in all, my model sphere is actually feeling pretty good. My only downside is the dark time is coming up. And I've got stuff really, really close, and I want to finish it up. But uh, uh, as I've mentioned previously, Thanksgiving to New Year is a pretty tough time to get anything done. So I'm I'm, I'm hoping that this year breaks that spell. How about you, Mike? 
Well, I've been pretty busy. I've been trying to verify all the functionality of the 3D printer I bought. And? And it works. <laughs> I went back and printed all the stuff I'd printed at work. Oh, did you? Yeah. And how does it compare to the stuff you printed at work? Did- well, the resin is different, but it's it's the same. Okay. So no question that it's the the same quality machine with the same level of... Uh, it's uh, the same machine. Yeah. Same machine. And like you, I attended a show. I went down to Tennessee last weekend and went and took in about three or four hours at the association, or the Appalachian Scale Modelers Association show in Greenville, Tennessee. Small independent show. I had a good time. Met some people. Bought a few things. Handed out some stickers. A good day in all. And then yeah. uh, on the dental theme, I was you know we went down to see my folks primarily. My dad's a retired dentist, and they're downsizing. And he dug out another handpiece that will fit my Weller dental engine and then a, uh, a contra angle attachment. It's kind of a, it's not quite a, not quite a 90 degree bend. Right. But it's, uh, it comes back probably, I don't know, 45 degrees off vertical. So oh, like not- I, buy, I have to buy new bits for it. Cause it's a latching type thing. It, it, oh. it, it's a whole, a whole different set of burrs, but why not? That was nice yeah. of your, your dad to think of you. Well, he usually does. Can't complain. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I assume that all three of us have a little bit of modeling fluid to, to help us get through the episode. Uh, Evan, what what's your modeling fluid for the tonight? I have a Waterloo Irish Cream Stout. Now, I actually oh. had this before, um, so I know it's good. Uh, but I was looking for, because this Waterloo Brewery made a salted caramel beer that I really liked because it had salted caramel flavor and it was, it was good. And then I went back and it was, oh, it was a seasonal thing. We don't have it anymore. Wow. But I bought some of the other stuff and it's been equally good, though different flavor profiles. So uh, it's Irish cream stout. Uh, I had it once before and it's good. It's also a seasonal thing for the, uh, well, I guess we have our Thanksgiving when you guys have Columbus Day, like a month right. before you. So it was kind of, it, it comes in a pack with uh, like a apple crumble flavored porter and a couple other things that are all equally interesting, but they're not too crazy. They're, they're still nice, but this is good. So do you like cream stouts? I tend to find them a little heavy. So I, I do you like the heavier beers? Yeah. Um, I like Guinness, but only when you get it at the pub. Right. Because when you get it in the little bottle and in the little can with the little donkus in there to make yeah. it have a head, it never works and it tastes bad. And <laughs> when you get it, when you get draft Guinness, I quite like that. Yeah. My wife agrees. This has uh, more of like a vanilla, uh, maybe even like a maple note. Hmm. Well, it's in Can- it's Canada. Everything has a maple note, right? There we go. It says bold flavors of creamy chocolate, vanilla, and brown sugar. There you go. go. That's caramel, or that's uh, maple syrup for you. I like sweet things, so brown sugar is good. Mike, uh, do you have a a modeling fluid? I about finished it waiting on Evan, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, pour yourself another. Yeah, well, oh, like you've got to twist his arm. Bell's two-hearted ale. Oh, okay. I've had Bell's, not the two-hearted, but... Comstock, Michigan. Yeah. American IPA. Good. Well, you'll have to. Have you ever? Is this new to you? No, it's not. But it's okay. a, a revisit from a long time. I've had it in a long time. Okay. 
well, you'll have to tell us at the end how that comes out. So. What do you got, my friend? Well, this is a sound effect. Because what I'm really drinking is my favorite beer on the planet. Probably the only thing that I prefer over Gumball Head. And that is when I went up to Cincinnati, I stopped by uh, Hofbrau House and I got a growler. Actually, I got two growlers of their um, Hofbrau House Hefeweizen. And I love this beer. I like it in a bottle. But the stuff you get in the bottles actually imported from Germany. Whereas if you get a growler up in Newport, uh, you get beer fresh brewed there. And it is fresh brewed beer has a taste different than any sort of can or bottled beer. And it's just fantastic. And I love it. And it's a good thing I don't live up in Newport or I would be, I would be abusing the privilege. I like it so much. So. Is it one of those weed beers? It is. It is a wheat beer, a Hefeweizen, <laughs> which is a wheat, wheat beer. So, but uh, yeah, it's fantastic. So uh, I already know what my report at the end is going to be, but uh, I'm going to enjoy it while we go through the episode. Well, we can enjoy these while we take in a bountiful crop of listener mail. Good. And there's some good stuff here. And Evan, yep. you know the drill. Yep. All right. Uh, first up is Sebastian Videk, and he is from, uh, he says, the sunny side of the Alps in Slovenia. So that's a long way away. Yeah. Now, apparently he had written in earlier, and I must have overlooked it. Or we, I don't know what happened. So I apologize, Sebastian, for that. He has a, a comment regarding our nose weight question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, when you hear this, you're going to like, yeah, why don't I do that? <laughs> okay, but it message it mess meshes with uh, an uh, somebody had asked if if there was a way to calculate it. I can't remember who sent that listener mail in, but it's like, yeah, you probably could if you had the took some measurements and et cetera. But you really don't need to go to that much work. So what he does, Sebastian does, mm-hmm. is he dry fits all the major components with uh, masking tape. Yeah, and then he lays it across a pencil across the uh, the mounting points for the main landing gear, the wing landing gear. Gotcha. And then he starts adding weight until it doesn't tip anymore. Hmm. I think, you know, <laughs> that is a great r- rough way to do it. I hadn't thought of that, but that is and then a really- I, I, I guess you throw enough extra in that you don't- Yeah, that you don't, you don't get a close one. But, you know, there's usually not that much after the cockpit anyway, so- Right. That you wouldn't be able to dry fit. I mean, the- Horizontal stabilizers and what? Yeah, be, even be, in a, even on a, a seventy second scale two engine aircraft, that would probably still be easy to do, and probably you could pull it off with a four engine aircraft like a B twenty four. Although B twenty fours give you tons of places to stick weight, right? <laughs> and he says, of course, the other option is to build a tail dragger. Yeah, well, that's true. Evan, when are you gonna build an airplane? I've still got my Edward Big Twenty One sitting here I, th- I probably mentioned this in our first episode together um as like oh i'm eventually gonna build this thing and eventually i will it's just i i got it because it's a, it's a subject that i will like to do but it's it's 48 scale 48 scale edward mig 21 mf with the i think it's the boxing lets you do egyptian and slovakian yes. and 
Yeah. The Slovakian one I like with the camouflage. It's all white and gray. Yeah. But I just have so many interesting Stug 3s and Panzer 4s and T-34s to do instead. Well, not only that, but they keep announcing new ones, so you'll never yeah. catch up. But uh, the nice thing about the Edward MiG-21 kits, well, at least in 72nd scale, I'm assuming probably in 48th, in the instructions, they actually tell you how many grams of weight to put in to keep it from being a tail dragger. So, uh, oh, grams, not ounces? I think, yes, I think it's grams, given that uh, <laughs> it comes from, from Europe. So... But, uh, yeah, at least they tell you what the weight is, so that, that makes life easier on that one. Up next is Robert Perlman. I think he's from somewhere in Western Canada. I think. I could be okay. wrong. I, I thought he was the guy that was helping, wanted to help out with uh, Scott McPhee up there in the, in the Great White North. He might have been. But we can't sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> at least not right now. We can later. Uh, he is looking for a decal set. And it's 48 scale, Dave, so you're not going to have it. Okay. that won't. Sorry, I can't help you with that. Uh, aviology decals. Oh. Uh, 48002 yeah. subscript M. They're for uh, Royal Canadian Air Force bow fighters. Yes. I was going to tell you that obviously he is from Canada because uh, that's uh, aviology sheets feature Canadian subjects and I don't have that in 48th, but uh, when Jim Bates listens to this episode, and I know he does, he has some contacts, and he might be able to help you locate one. So, Jim, when you listen to this episode on Friday morning, because I know you do, uh, see if you can help the guy out. And uh, I assume this is TF-10s? Yeah, TF-10. TF-10 of the 404th Squadron, early to late 1944. It says his great uncle flew in this squadron and would like to do one of those aircraft. Okay, and he's collected well, all the, he's collected all the aftermarket for the uh, RCAF uh, TF-10s armed with rockets. Yep. And he can't find the decals. Well, Jim, Jim should not only be able to at least assist him with looking for those decals. Jim has a lot of information on 404 squadrons. So he should be able to point him in, in numerous directions. Brandon Jacobs writes in uh, regarding winter blitz in college station, Texas, January 21st in college station, Texas at the museum of the American GI. Now they're looking for a few more trophy sponsors to get that, that, that all wrapped up. I think, Dave, what I'm going to do is I'm going to forward you this for the show notes. Yeah. And then at some point between now and January, we're just going to get Brandon on here and let him tell us about Winter Blitz 2. That's a great idea. I mean, they they did this, uh, you know, their inaugural show was last year, and it was a success. And, and, you know, we'd like to see them uh, continue that success. So I'd love to get him on here to talk about it. It's too bad it's so far away. I know. Especially for Evan. It's at a great little museum. Yes. Matt Schaefer from Mankato, Minnesota. I think that's Mankato. Okay, Mankato. Kato, Kato. Evan knows. Model railroading. Japanese locomotive manufacturer. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. He's about an hour south of Minneapolis. So I wonder if he knows uh, Steve and that gang. I would imagine. Well, he's about to spit his coffee out with my re report to your little juvenile. That's what she said joke. 
Oh, why? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that was good. Yes. <laughs> but but I will say that uh, on a a little higher plane of sophistication, uh, Brian Dinklow from uh, the Build Sideways podcast sent us a nice message uh, appreciating the Dante's Inferno reference <laughs> from, from the other joke. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, now you realize all our listeners are listening to each episode twice, and they're trying to go back and catch all the the sly references and the musical references, all of that stuff. Well, they don't all have one, so they may be disappointed. Craig Everson from Sydney, Australia. Man, we're getting mail from everywhere. That's right. Uh, who was it? Was it Derek Post was looking for hobby shops in Manly, Australia? Yeah, I think so. If not, Derek. Whoever it was. <laughs> you can go to, I guess. Somebody was going out of, out of country for work. Right. Uh, we've got some URLs that I'll send to you, Dave. And okay. Bit, for all I know, it's too late. They're already traveling, but... Uh, there's a hobby shop on the manly side of Sydney Harbor called Northern Beaches Hobby Center. And if he wants to go into uh, Sydney proper, there's a hobby co, which is in the Queens Victoria building. Uh, in addition, Craig will be attending a show called Scale ACT the weekend of the 5th and 6th of November. So that's going to be the weekend after this episode drops. Yep. In Canberra. And that's where... David and Ian from OTB are going to go and be there. So yeah, tell them howdy from the guys in Kentucky. That's right. And Canada. Yeah. Tony Faust, East Lansing, Michigan. It's almost where my beer's from. Yeah. Well, he said for a number of years, he's been uh, checking the IPMS site to see if any chapters opened up near him, closer to him. And uh, just last month, a show opened up in his area, just 10 minutes away. Great. That club would be club, not show. I said show, didn't I? Yeah, you said show, but you meant would, club. Would be CAMS, the Capital Area Modeler Society. They meet the first Thursday of every month at the Capital Area District Library, 401 South Capital Avenue. Well, I'm glad he found a chapter. And uh, you know what's weird is that if you go through and look at the list of chapters and when when they have their monthly meeting, almost all of them meet once a month. The number of them that do it on a Thursday is amazing. I don't know why Thursday is an open night, but that it does doesn't seem interfere that with the weekend. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah. I think that's true. I think that, that probably uh, Thursday night works because, you know, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday tend to be occupied with family and stuff. So, but yeah, a ton of clubs, including our own, have their um, meeting on our a Thursday. Own, it's here in Ottawa that meets on Thursdays as well. See? I just there's something universal about it. Oh, I forgot the time. Eighteen thirty to two thousand. That's what, six thirty to eight? Six thirty to eight, yeah. Uh again, six thirty eight, Capital Area Look or District Library, the Capital Area Model Modeler Society. Now <laughs> uh a funny note here, um the Club was, you know, it's new, so they're asking, you know, ways to increase membership, as all clubs do when they're new, because it only had six members until he joined, making seven. After the guy completed his presentation about getting new members, uh, Anthony or Tony brought up the idea of reaching out to the podcast, our podcast, to see if we could give him a mention in the upcoming episode. Yes. And he got a, he got a bunch of blank stares. <laughs> And then he had to ask a follow-up question about their familiarity with podcasts. 
a couple of members had heard of them, but had never listened to any. So he gave him the spiel on what that's all about. And great. Asked if we would mention this on our next episode, and we just did. Absolutely. And listen, that this is exactly what I talk about when I do the do the pitch uh, later in the show. There are tons of modelers that don't listen to podcasts, don't know anything about this aspect of the hobby. And the best way for us to get new listeners is to you is for you to go to your local meeting and mention something about it and ask people are they listening and if not tell them a little bit about it so that really helps us and I appreciate Tony doing that um, in addition Tony you might reach out to IPMS USA's director of local chapters uh, you can find his email address on the ipmsusa.org website. They can actually give you a list of IPMS USA members within a certain radius of your club location and, uh, you know, put you in touch with those people or put those people in touch with you to help attract new people to your chapter. And he goes on to ask some technical questions about podcasting because he and a Marine Corps buddy of his have a podcast dealing with uh, mostly reviews of military history books. Oh. It's called Odin and Aesop. Okay. Is the name of the podcast, and uh, I'll give you that link. And, uh, Tony, I will address these technical questions uh, privately in an email. Thank gosh they're doing a podcast about something other than modeling. <laughs> Evan's going to start one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's got a YouTube channel. He's way more famous than us. He doesn't need he doesn't need a podcast a lowly podcast. Man, this must be Michigan night. John Paisano from uh Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. He he's got a lot of questions. Um and we'll go through these and some of these we're gonna defer to episode seventy seven when Dr. Strange Strange brushes back to talk about clear parts and canopies. But some of these we can talk about before then. Okay. Uh, let's see. Do you use a manufactured paint mask whenever possible, Dave? Heck yes. <laughs> In fact, I am here to tell you that I have taken a solemn vow that I will not build a model from this point going forward. And this point's actually a couple of years ago where there is not a commercial paint mask set, canopy mask set, readily available. I'm, 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 a, life's too short. There are too many models I want to build, <laughs> and a canopy mask set absolutely cuts the time that you, that you need to complete a model by a huge factor, especially for complex canopies. So... Yeah, I will I will not from here into the future be building a model where there isn't such a set available. I've bought some for my E16 but I've never used any. Evans got an aircraft on his shelf of doom. It probably has well, a mask. It probably has a mask in it if it's an Edward yeah, kit. Edward kit yeah. has a mask. That's why I selected that kit. <laughs> Smart move, Evan. Yes. Have you used any of the armor marking mask yet? Uh, I've got a bunch of the ones from DN Models and a few that a local buddy did for me as well. And they are so much better than using decals. Like I, 
I just love these things because it, it it's quicker. You don't have to worry about silvering and doing varnishes and micro salt. You just put them on and spray it. And it also looks a lot better because it has that imperfection and it blends with the paint better and it conforms details and everything. It's just, it looks so much better. Yeah. For armor masked, uh, masked and painted markings yeah. have that great benefit of being able to be uh, irregularly applied or irregularly weathered where you, where you can weather the, what you painted on. Whereas going to weather the decal it can be a little bit more difficult. So uh, I, I, for armor, those make great sense. And they, in some instances, make great sense for aircraft. And he asks further, do you have any trouble finding manufactured paint masks for your build projects, especially older kits? And then can you share your top three resources in this regard? Now, can you come up with three oh. names off the top of your head, Dave? <laughs> oh, of course I can. Number one, uh, probably the best source for paint masks overall is Hannett's. You can find almost every manufacturer's paint masks at Hannett's, and Hannett's tends to keep everything in stock, so it's by far my number one source. Additionally, because paint masks are, of course, like decal sheets or photo etched thin and and easily shippable, the shipping costs from Hannett's, if you only order flat items, paint mask, decals, photo etch, the shipping costs are very, very reasonable. Number two, uh, if you're doing Japanese-focused, there is a company out of, it's somewhere in Europe, it might be the Czech Republic, it might be, I'm not 100% sure where they're physically located, called Dead Design Models, and they do paint masks for pretty much every every 72nd scale Japanese aircraft, and they may do some 48th scale. And that includes all of the older Fujimi, Hasegawa, uh, et cetera, older kits. So if if you are World War II Japanese-focused, dead design is your place to look first. My third choice would probably be, well, there's a decent selection at Sprue Brothers. It's not as comprehensive, but of course they're located here in the U.S. So if you're located in the U.S., that's a good place to look. Um, and for our guys down under, BNA in Australia carries uh, uh, a, a fine selection of all aftermarket. So those are the four that you know, uh, the three distributors, and then the one manufacturer that I would look at. But it's with the internet, you know, this is what we talked about when we talked about internet and aftermarket and all that. The internet has made locating whether or not there's a paint mask for your particular model very easy. And then once you find out that some manufacturer at some point did the paint mask, then you can basically, from the comfort of your your model room in front of your computer, do a worldwide search to locate that mask. One more we'll take from this list. The others, uh, I'll read them, but we're going to, we're going to defer these to, to Dr. Miller and make sure these come up. Cause I, I'm sure they will. Do you paint the canopy before attaching your weight? Is that dependent on circumstances? Short answer is yes. yes. But, uh, 
he may give us some information that may be useful for that. And, you know, when to use white glue for windows, I'm sure Dr. Miller is going to talk about all the adhesive options for clear parts. Uh, we'll save those. And just, just quick, Dave, because I don't know the answer to this one either. He's asking, have you built many 70-second scale bombers? His first impression is that not many in this genre get built, and he just wanted to know why that was. You know what? Um, I built the Mosquito earlier this year. And I built a bomber version. And I think this is true of all scales as far as aircraft goes. The vast majority of aircraft that you see at shows are single-engine fighters or single-engine fighter equivalents. When I refer to single-engine fighters, I'm talking about in the modern context an F-4 or an F-18, which, yes, I know they've got two engines, or F-15s, you, you tend to see fighters built. The In 72nd scale, um, if you go to the – just to give you an example, we went to the Nationals in Omaha, and 72nd scale World War II aircraft, 72nd scale single-engine World War II aircraft, that category got split four or five ways because there were so many entries. Whereas 72nd scale medium props, which are World War II bombers, etc., stuff like that, uh, there may have been one split, but that tells you how many fewer models in multi-engine aircraft get built. And I'd say it's a factor of at least four or five times less multi-engine aircraft than it is the single-engine fighters. And probably in all scales, it's a matter of project scope and size. Yes. Yep. I think that's absolutely true. And storage size. You can put a whole lot of 72nd scale single-engine props in a Deltoff Ikea cabinet, whereas if you're building multi-engine aircraft, you may only, in 72nd scale, you may only be able to get five or six into a case. All right. Well, we'll save the rest for Dr. Miller and uh, talk more about clear parts and canopies next time. Good questions, though. Yes, absolutely. Uh, up next, Dalton Lott again, our young listener from, from Georgia. We got that right. And uh, he's never been to a modeling show. And he's been wondering if we know of any show in Georgia, preferably around central Georgia. You're going to want to look into Atlanticon. Yes. It's not exactly central Georgia. Mm, by the, close enough. By the Georgia definition of central Georgia. Right. It's closer to the middle than the top. So, or maybe it's not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I got online and looked. They've, they've got a date set on the IPMS USA website, but I didn't find any other information. So... That's and I think it's early, like February. Yeah. So keep an eye out for Atlanticon because I'm sure they're having it. Go to the IPMS USA website, ipmsusa.org, and check. They've got a, a drop down box, and one of the choices is calendar. If you go to calendar, it will tell you all of the shows upcoming and their dates, and you just simply have to look for ones in Georgia or Alabama or wherever is near you, and you can figure out what contests are near you uh, in central Georgia. 
couple more here before I hand it over to you, Dave. Uh, All right. Michael DeFelice from Des Moines, Iowa, was the person who suggested the aftermarket and its relationship to the internet. He told us that in Omaha. Yep. And he says, one thing we didn't mention was the difficulty, if not impossibility, of local stores to carry a lot of aftermarket. Now, uh, in this day and age, it's not as bad as it used to be. Yeah. Uh, but just the, the the amount of it and the depth of the product lines just really make it hard for a, a small independent shop to, uh, to, to stock all that in any kind of depth. Right. And a, a local hobby shop makes its money by turning over inventory quickly. Uh, a, a model shop does not want to have an item sit on a shelf for 10 years before it sells because that, that costs the, uh, the uh, hobby shop owner the time value of money. So a lot of even well-stocked hobby shops tend to not stock full ranges of aftermarket like photo etch or or decals or resin, they may have bits and pieces that they get in. Particularly when one of their customers asks to order something, and then they've got to add some things to fill out an order. But yeah, it is really hard for the local hobby shop to carry a full range of aftermarket. But luckily, we have the internet and. Between the internet and the electronic payment systems like PayPal or, or uh, you know, even credit cards, uh, you know, you can put your hands on any piece of aftermarket that's currently available just with a little bit of Googling. Last one from the email side is our friend Michael Karnaka from New York City. He's come through again. He's got a question for us. Do you know of any modeling urban legends from your time in the hobby? There used to be one regarding the Aurora Universal Monster Kits that the molds were on a ship that sank off the coast of Mexico during a storm or were destroyed when a freight train transporting them collided with another. I heard the freight train story. And But then in the 90s, Monogram released these kits in glow-in-the-dark plastic. And the Lost at Sea rumor was also attributed to the, uh, uh, I think, Lindbergh, the 116th scale stagecoach and horses. Uh. Also released by IMAX. There's one of those built at that show in Tennessee. Oh, was there? Yeah. Really? Because that's an old kit, even yeah. even in a repop. This can cover anything from kits, company lore, assembly techniques, whatever. He once heard a guy put some uh, Pop Rocks candy in his modeling fluid and his head blew off. <laughs> I'm, I'm beginning to doubt that one. <laughs> I, I will say that I, too, heard the story about Select Aurora kits being on a train that was in a in a train wreck and the molds were destroyed. Um, I've heard that story about any number of Aurora kits, not just the ones he's mentioned. Urban legends, any other urban legends? You got one, Evan? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little young for these kind of urban legends you're talking about, but <laughs> you mentioned extending to techniques and manufacturers and everybody else, and the only thing that I can think of is, you know, always wash your sprues before you build the kit. And I understand that stems from older kits where they're covered in grease and everything. And right. Nowadays, kits have ejection molding lubricant to integrate into the plastic and all that stuff. So it's not, 
it's not uh, really important to wash the sprues before assembly necessarily because you're going to get more grease on them with, from your fingers uh, than you would from lingering material from the factory. But I, I sometimes get a modern kit with like a big blob of grease that must have just dripped off of some kind of machine in the factory. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's still a, it still has this select, you know, uh, applications today. Yeah, my my attitude in regard to that, you're right with with the modern plastic formulations and all, quote unquote mold release agent is yeah. is not really a thing anymore. To I mean, with modern mainline manufacturers, but I'm one of those people that, and maybe it's just a superstition at this point, yeah, but yeah. I am one of those people. It's like it can't hurt. You know, yeah, no, I, I see that. There's no bet harm that comes from it, right? So dropping parts down the sink, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no, I I use uh, <laughs> I use a, a little bit of t- a Tupperware tub and warm water and a drop or two of Dawn for degreasing purposes. Drop them in, slosh them around, pull them out, lay them on a a, a paper towel to dry off for a day, and you're good to go. And oh. at this point, it's probably more of a superstition akin akin to wearing a certain jersey or a certain pair of socks when your hockey team is playing. Yeah. But <laughs> no harm, no foul. It might work. I, I was just joking there a second ago about, you know, dropping a sprue down the sink. But every time I see Martin and you can ring that, ring the bell now 40 minutes in every time he's washing his finished kit, which makes more sense because you've got all your finger grease right. on it. Just washing it right over a sink with all that photo etch and everything. I'm like, oh my god! I look at my kit wrong and photo etch falls off. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> and I, I know at some point that has to have happened to him. But yes, every time I you I I watch him do that, I I die inside a little because it's like, oh my god! You know, something's gonna something's gonna fall off. Just like for the longest time, he used those freaking nail scissors to cut cut parts off the sprue and you're like why are you doing that well dave what's been happening on facebook messenger our friend lee fogel who lives up in northern kentucky lee listened to our episode on aftermarket and lee is an enthusiast of bargain hunting finding older kits find you know going to a show and you know how every vendor has boxes under their table of just random stuff? He says that is a great place to find older aftermarket, and many of much of which is very serviceable on modern builds um, uh, and still usable on older builds that uh, that the original uh, aftermarket was was meant for. He says uh, you have to be a little bit picky and you have to kind of know what you're looking for, but you know, you can pick up out of those boxes under the vendors tables really decent aftermarket for pennies on the dollar compared to what it was when the stuff came out. So he's uh, he 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 mentioned that, and I think that that's that's true. I've I've, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of dumpster diving, and I've been at plenty of shows where I found myself kneeling down and going through those boxes, and you occasionally come across a gem. And uh, finally, we actually received a 
DM from uh, Jim Bates, and he says that uh, he listened to our whole episode on aftermarket and never mentioned once the hallowed British firm Aero Club. They made white metal parts in the 80s and 90s that were boons to modelers at the time. Now, they may look a little little crude now, but in the day, they were the cutting edge of aftermarket. Uh, He tells us that his first aftermarket purchase was something from Era Club, either an engine or an ejection seat. His first short-run kit was uh, 299 models BJ5J, which is the little mini air, mini jet that was in the, the James Bond movie. <laughs> and uh, he he actually, the, the company 299 models was located out in uh, Seattle, and he bought it bought the kit from him way back then, but now, of course, he lives out there and is good friends with Terry Moore, who ran that company. His first PE was Model Technologies 72nd Scale F-18 Cockpit Set. And if you're not familiar with it, Model Technologies was Photo Etch, but it was that steel Photo Etch. Yeah, stainless steel. <laughs> stainless steel. Oh, they were the bane of my existence. And then his first vacuform was a airframe Blackburn Airedale, which was a cheap vacuform, and he said he's still in therapy after trying to build it. He signs it as Scale Canadian PMM West Coast Promotion Man. <laughs> Is that it? That's it. Well, if you'd like to write into the show, you can do so by sending us an email to plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com or hit us up on the Facebook page through the messenger system, and uh, we'd like to hear from you. This is the point in the episode where I ask at the end of the episode, if you would please, when you're done listening, go to whatever podcasting app you listen to the us on, uh, rate the podcast, give it five stars. And as I've mentioned in the previous segment, if you listen to us and you have modeling friends who don't listen to the podcasts or don't know what podcasts are, please Take the time to educate them, help them out if they need help downloading a podcast app or finding our our podcast. As I've said every time, the best way for us to grow as a podcast is for current listeners to tell people who who are interested in this subject but who aren't yet listening. So please do that. And after you've done that. Please check out all the other podcasts out there in the model sphere at modelpodcast.com, the consortium website set up with the help of Stuart Clark from uh, Scale Model Podcast up in Canada. Uh, you can find banner links to all the other podcasts that choose to participate in this uh, consortium with us at modelpodcast.com. In addition to podcasts, we've got some other creators out there, blog and YouTube friends. We've got Mr. Chris Wallace, a model airplane maker. He's got a great blog and a great YouTube channel. Stephen Lee, Sprue Pie with Frets. He's got a, a really interesting blog with lots of long and short form uh, verbiage out there for you to take in on the hobby and his take on it and his builds. He's got all kinds of stuff out there, really. Uh, Jeff Groves, Inch High Guy, which I'm sure you saw in, in uh, Cincinnati, Dave. Yes, spent a lot of time with him. 
uh, Inch High Guy blog, all things 72nd scale. And we just heard Jim Bates, Scale Canadian TV. He's got a YouTube channel you're going to want to check out for a little uh, humor on the hobby. And we can't forget our third chair host tonight, Evan McCallum. What do you got, Evan? Well, I make a YouTube channel, Panzermeister36, and I mainly look at painting and weathering and also some construction techniques for 135th scale armor. A lot of World War II stuff, but, you know, everything is everything's on there if it's interesting to me. And yeah, I just have a good time there. Mainly weathering, that's my passion in the hobby. And occasionally model railroad stuff. Like I said, whatever is my fancy for that <laughs> video, I guess. <laughs> there would there wouldn't happen to be any stud content on that on that channel, would there? There's one or two videos. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Finally, as uh, you know, uh, ask you if you're not a member of your local or your national IPMS organization, IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, IPMS Norway, or IPMS Israel, whatever, wherever you happen to be listening to us, please consider joining IPMS. The national organization does a lot of things. Also, if you're a member of your national IPMS and you are interested in forming a chapter, reach out to the national organization. They have a whole lot of resources to help you form a uh, local modeling chapter. All right, guys. Well, let's take a break here and have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, Dave, it's coming, make it in Texas. And at the time of this recording, I have no idea how many days it is because I forgot to look it up. <laughs> so go back to the last episode and uh, subtract 14 subtract days. 14 days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, we're still a ways out and we're going to be a ways out for a few more months. Then it's going to get close and fast. But Mojovian Special Agent 003, Mr. Brandon Jacobs, has a report. Uh, to give us some more information on one of the little side trip opportunities if you attend the 2023 IPMS Nationals in San Marcos, Texas. And that's the uh, National Museum of the Pacific War, a.k.a. the Nimitz Museum. Um, oh, yeah. Apparently, collectively including him, we kind of undersold it last time. Uh-oh. Uh, this is one of the top five muse military museums in the United States. Wow. Hang on. And Special Agent 003 gives it a five-star rating. Now, this is in the town of Fredericksburg. It's a major destination and a great side trip, he says, for national attendees, particularly those heading east towards San Marcos. Uh, Fredericksburg is less than an hour and a half from San Marcos, if you wanted to take a side trip during the show. Um, Fredericksburg has over 60 wineries and vineyards. It's a major tourist de destination in a cool town, with the center point, of course, being the National Museum of the Pacific War. And, uh, you know, it's the hometown of Chester Nimitz, as we talked about last time. And, yes, it's nowhere near the coast, but uh, it's in his hometown. And it says the museum is much more than a tribute to uh, Admiral Nimitz. It remains true the Admiral's promise to honor all those who served to support the war effort in the Pacific Theater. And the museum proudly represents the facts and stories and artifacts of the Pacific War. He says there's planes, a PT boat, tanks, landing craft. Uh, Japanese HA-19 mini-sub. Lots of stuff. 
Mike, we might we might have to take a side trip while we're down there because that tickles my fancy. And he's he's provided some links to the uh, Fredericksburg Greater Area and the museum and uh, a few others that we'll get in the show notes. You're gonna, gonna be busy this time, Dave. And he also mentions in that and in that area, 15 minutes further east of Fredericksburg, but just about an hour from San Marcos, is Lukenbach, Texas, which is a uh, kind of a Texas Hill Country uh, bar music music hall kind of post office town, you know. Can can we go there to meet Waylon, Willie, and the boys? That's right, Lukenbach, Texas. You get to make the music reference. That's what I was going to say. This is the first time in PMM history that I have made the musical reference. <laughs> well, he actually has that in his. But you didn't. See, you haven't seen the email, so you get no. I haven't too. seen the email, so <laughs> to be fair, I came up with it uh, naturally. Okay. Well, he says stopping in Lukenbach for a beer or two is highly re- recommended. Spending as is spending a day at the museum, and both are open on Sunday, so you can catch it on the way out if you're heading back uh, west. I guess is that right? Yeah. Hardcore Texas Hill Country. Very unique and very friendly. And ain't nobody feeling no pain. See, I did it too. Evan has no idea. No. <laughs> Evan, has, Evan has zero clue of anything we just said. <laughs> yeah. Make a Stug reference. I'll get that. That's yeah, right. Sure. <sighs> well, he provides a little bit of information for the American GI Museum, but uh, I think, uh, Brandon, I'm going to challenge you to come up with a little more information on that, and uh, we'll get that in next time. Good. All right. Well, now it's time for the Benchtop Halftime Report, sponsored by Tackett Z. Tackett Z, the must-have tools for the model maker. You can see what Ed's been up to at TackettZ.com. I've failed again, Dave. I have not responded to Ed about the... FlexiFile storage box. Make a note you need to do that because I need him to produce more, more of those because I need one desperately. All right. Well, Dave, we're starting with you tonight. What's on your bench? Uh, the Kate is in decals. In fact, she's um, uh, she's probably 75% of the way through the decaling process. It's actually with the exception of some very thin outline decals, it's gone very well. Uh, I think I've set a record right now. I have used decals from at least five different decal sheets uh, for the decals for this thing. And when I'm all done, it's going to be seven. So I will have ruined seven parts of seven decal sheets to make this uh, one model but it looks great. I did start the uh, Musaru Cup build of the P51, Arma P51. It is some of the finest molding in injection plastic I have ever seen. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of amazed that they could do some of the stuff that they actually did in addition, the instruction, if you've got this kit, this is the P51BC from Arma. If you have this kit, the one thing I can recommend to you is take your time with the instructions. The instructions are so information filled that frankly, the instruction booklet could be twice as, as long. Um, you really have to be careful and read and reread the instructions. You know, a lot of models, 
And a lot of modelers are like, instructions, I don't need them. You know, I can figure. That's not the case. You really need to read the instructions multiple times to make sure that what you think you're supposed to do is what you're supposed to do. But it's great. The B-52 continues to mock me from from the photo booth behind me. It's uh, uh, 75% of the way through the painting process. And as soon as I get the Kate off the desktop, that is the, I'm going to move that back into the paint shop and, and get it knocked out, hopefully, uh, before the end of the year if the dark time doesn't claim me. So uh, how about uh, you, Evan? What's, uh, what's on your bench top? Uh, everything I mentioned in the last episode <laughs> with a little bit more progress in every single thing. Oh, uh, mainly I'm working on uh, my T72 B3M from May, which as I mentioned last time, I'm going to do is some kind of war in Ukraine, either disabled Russian or captured Ukrainian subject. Sure. How could you not? Yeah. I'm leaning more towards the destroyed Russian because then I can go with the, uh, unique stowage arrangements of all the household appliances I picked up as resin accessories. And I also got a, a Dan models uh, from Ukraine, Ukrainian company. They have a, a Ukrainian soldier with a javelin. So I kind of want to have them standing in front of it. Nice. And the Balaton models cope cage will look excellent on the turret of this vehicle as well. Oh, that would, that uh, I, the, the cope cages really are the <laughs> piece de la resistance for the, for the Russian armor. Yeah. Now, one thing I think is interesting here is, and that I've realized recently when I was talking on Skype with Bruce Worrell, is something I do a lot is when I'm working on a tank, I will put the tracks together at the beginning. And Bruce said that reminded him of, I think you've talked about this before, Dave, aircraft modelers will put together uh, like the... Um, the bombs and equipment like that before yep. they get to the rest of it. So that doesn't hang up the build at the end. You kind of get that painful right. part out of the way at the beginning. So you can then enjoy the rest of the build. And I do that a lot with tracks. So for this T72, each track link is like four parts. Um, so you kind of got to, they're well engineered um, and they actually go together a lot faster than some of the trumpeter multi-part track links, but it still just takes a little while to put these all together. And uh I've been putting together a lot of other tracks recently as well. Now, do you use any sort of jig, track building, commercial track building jig when you... Mm, no. Uh, I, you know, if I was older and I had, like, my vision wasn't as great and everything like that, and maybe... Oh, I here we go. Rub it yeah. in. <laughs> rub, rub it in. Now, sometimes uh, they give you a jig. So, like, the Ryefield model will give you jigs. Yeah. Where they're Panzer threes and the or Panzer four and Stuck three. And that was really useful when I was putting together their vehicle. And the um uh this main kit comes with a jig, multi-part jig, because there's so many different, like I said, four parts that go in each track link. But that jig looked almost like it was gonna be too much trouble. And these track links actually kind of click together because the end connectors are molded as a flexible plastic kind of like polycap gotcha so they just pop on and it's i've had a lot of success just putting them together like you don't need glue you cook them all together but i don't need the jig it's it's almost easier to do without uh, i don't know 
but I'm sure uh, like they include the jig. So if that's your style, you can do that. And I'm sure it works, but I have not had a need for it. And uh, my other bench time, bench top project right now is my T34 Stalingrad uh, that I mentioned last time as well. I'm making more progress, but I was waiting for the Archer resin weld decals to arrive because I ordered a bunch of Archer stuff because they were having their going at a business sale. Yep. And it finally arrived and I ordered like all, I ordered all the welds, all the German decals, all the Canadian decals for armor. You know, I ordered the, it's good the Tetra stuff. fire extinguisher labels. Like it's, it's good stuff. And I made sure I stocked up. So I'll be good for a while because Archer's, Archer stuff is good, and I really, really like their weld decals because I'll say while their welds aren't as crisp as if you went full night shift and did the vehicle yourself, their welds are perfect to match the quality of, you know, like 80% nice-looking welds that you see molded in the plastic already. So it doesn't really stand out because if you have the kit welds and you add one yourself, your own weld usually looks so much better that it almost stands out. But if you use the Archer welds, it fits with the rest of the quality and, you know, you give it a wash, it looks like a weld, but it doesn't have that contrast as different types of welds compared to what's molded on other parts of the kit. So I like them for that for sure. And I also like it because I don't have to spend hours and hours and hours making the individual weld beads. I just slap the decal on. And it looks great. Mike. Well, the E16 is back on the bench. Yes. I've seen that. Uh, I've posted a few pictures to the dojo group. And let's see, uh, I made good on my gizmology promise on the, on the launch trolley. I got that all taken care of. I used some styrene, some nut bolt washer castings and rivet castings to detail that up just a little bit and prove some of the, the con- fuselage contact points on the trolley. Did, did you happen to use your new 3D printer? I did. I catted up uh, one of the drag hooks that's on the either end of the catapult, used to reposition it. You know, at times when you're not firing the launch mechanism. Right. By using a winching cable and uh, printed those up, got those on. Those look good. Um, it's all primed. The whole thing's in primer now. The trolley and the inner mechanism are fully primed. I've just spot primed the the uh, the, the beam or truss of the, the entire catapult. Just trying to make sure all my Mr. Surfacer fill points and sink marks are all, are all good and they look look to be so i'm gonna slather that in primer here hopefully this week sometime i guess the next step once i have it primed is to start start painting it and it's kind of got to paint it from the inside out because i got to paint the the launch mechanism then i've got to rig that and then put that into the painted interior of the catapult and then put the side on it it's just a there's no real good way to do it so it's going to be sure it's going to be tedious, but uh, eh, we'll get there. Uh, the other thing I've been doing build-wise is the, in the virtual space. I've been revisiting the CAD work I did for the the Rebobotan truck project. I've kind of got – well, I've been noodling around with that for quite a while, but not much progress. It's been since about February since I've looked at that, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I had one of the tires modeled. Now, I've been following a an RC model blog – well, it's a, it's a, it's not a blog. It's a forum. It's actually a Hungarian forum where this guy built this. I can't remember what it's like one twelfth scale or one sixteenth scale mm-hmm. RC version of this truck. And he's a real capable machinist can do a lot of stuff. I can't do, don't know how to do. Uh, but, uh, 
he wanted this thing to be a pretty accurate model. So he started with the tire because he knew if he couldn't get the tire right, he wasn't going to fool with the entire project. So I kind of taken that same approach. I've been learning Fusion 360 and had, had done up this tire as a kind of a first pass. But I forgot how I did it because it's been <laughs> since February. So I've gone back through the you – can, you can march back through the, the build steps in the CAD and figure out how I did it. And now I'm going to go have another pass at it as soon as I – get some of this other stuff done and can have a, have a, have a, have some time to devote to it. But, you know, I printed the tire on the printer and it came out really good. You know, yeah, kind of my, beautiful. my test model, but there's some things about it aren't quite right. The profile's not quite right. The tread pattern wasn't deep enough in the center of the tire. It was going to not look that great once it was painted. Uh, but I can fix all that. So you, you're on a, either a Facebook group or a forum for that CAD software. And as I remember, they, showed you some tips and tricks as to how to CAD that up? Uh, they showed me how to bring in 2D artwork into my CAD space and just start sketching on top of it. Gotcha. That's a really, really powerful tool, actually, because I couldn't do that with what I'd been using before. But that's pretty much it. I, I've not – I put the, the KV-85s on the shelf for a while. I get a little further down the paint road on this airplane and catapult. And then the the truck's just an aside still, so that's not going to go full bore anytime. So that's what I've been working on. I've been making some progress. Hello, Mojovians. This is Chris from Inside the Armour Publications, and I'm here to tell you all about Models for Ukraine, Volume 2. The first volume of Models for Ukraine raised money for humanitarian aid for Ukraine by featuring only Ukrainian manufacturers made by some of the best modelers around the world. Why mess with a good formula? Volume 2 features much of the same. This time, though, all of the articles will be new and feature such great artists as Calvin Tan, Ken Abrams, Sam Dwyer, René van der Hart, Franz Lubin, Robert Blocker, and many more. All in all, 23 artists in 11 countries have donated their work for free to what we think is a fantastic modelling book that also happens to raise a lot of money for a good cause. If you'd like to purchase this fantastic book, please head on over to InsideTheArmor.com to get yours today. Also, if you'd like to know more about the model manufacturers of Ukraine, please look up Models from Ukraine podcast to hear the latest interviews with people like Reskit, Wingsy Kits, Armory, and many of the other Ukrainian manufacturers. A special thank you to Mike and Dave. Raise your glass of modeling fluid and let's get back to the plastic model mojo. Well, it's time for our special segment now. And, uh, We'll need some help naming this from the listening audience out there. <laughs> uh, I've got on the outline the, the spin wheel of random nonsense. Could be the topic wheel of doom or whatever. What I've got here are, are, are 10 topics. We we're probably not going to get through all of them, but we're going to get through some of them. Um, I'm the only one who knows what they all are. And I've got these loaded into an app on my phone, and we're going to spin this wheel at random, and whatever comes out, comes out and we're going to talk about it a little bit till we exhaust it and then we'll move on to a new one what do you think guys sounds great hey, i listen sounds like a little fun <laughs> i love I, lo- I love a game show man <laughs> the, the only yeah, what's question in the pot? <laughs> that's what i was gonna say what's it do, what do evan and i win if we come up with the correct answers you get a <laughs> your supply of rice aroni Thank you. There you go. The San Francisco treat. That's right. There's, and again, there's no, there's no BMW or boat or trip to Hawaii. No, 
Where's nah, all that I, Patreon money going, guys? Don't even talk to us about that. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, uh, see that that San Francisco Riceroni reference completely lost on Evan. Mm. <laughs> you should make these references when Jim Bates is on. Yeah, well, true, but then he wouldn't get them for another reason. <laughs> all right, let's hi, rock. Let's hi, rock Jim. and roll. All right. That was suspenseful. That was suspenseful. <laughs> What's a maker you won't build? Period. Oh, that's easy. Mach 2. <laughs> Under no circumstances, no way, no how, at no time, you could not pay me sufficient money to do so. Over to you, Evan. My instant reaction was to say Itilary, but I have built an Itilary kit, which was the Tamiya Itilary it's an Italy kit reboxed by Tammy as the P40 Italian tank. And that wasn't too bad. And there are some Italy kits that I kind of want to build someday. Like they're some of their auto Blinda and their, um, their light, like Italian. It's because they make interesting vehicles, yep. but their kits also generally, I mean, they're getting better, but their kits aren't nearly as polished as some of the other companies. I don't know. I will say I, I won't put a Heller kit. Maybe I won't put a Heller armor kit or anything like that. I was going to suggest Allen kit for Mike, but I know Mike has technically built an Allen. I've kit. built one. I've got a few still in the stash that could potentially get built. Maybe I don't know. Well, but saying you built an Allen kit is is a little bit disingenuous, considering I don't think there's more than twenty percent Allen content. In the Allen kit you built? <laughs> Probably not. You scavenged the Allen kit. I yes. use, I use the most useful parts. That's my that's the, that's my mantra though. I actually built the Etolary uh, Auto Belinda in 72nd scale, and it's actually a really good kit. I I was shocked. I don't know the name of it, but the uh the one that is set up for the railway tracks has got the wheels A B forty one. Forty one, that's what I thought. Yeah, the that one always catches my eye at the shows whenever I see it. It's usually like 15 bucks, right? But yeah. it's probably a half-decent kit, and no one else makes that, right? So it's it'd, be, it'd probably be worth it for the build. I mean, I built plenty of Dragon kits that were horrible because they're lazy and how they rebox their <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I, I haven't built nearly enough older kits like you guys have to know the oh. suffering of some of those things, Ow. so I don't know if this is a... A question that I really know the answer to, but I've been spoiled with the the golden age of of modeling because I started building kits ten years ago at the at the oldest, right? Mike, did you notice how he slipped that knife in so so? Yeah, I mean, you hardly even <laughs> no, I think noticed. He just, he just twisted the one he already had in. Had that's right. <laughs> but I think he's got a good point, Evan, with the Italeri. Some of those Italian subjects are pretty good. And maybe being an Italian company, they put a little more effort into those, possibly. Yep. But I mean, if you go back to the the late nineties when they were they came out with a Panther A. Oh, well, that's yeah, that's a notorious kit. And then th- there are some Tiger tanks they did, and and the Yog Panther, and they're just all categorically subpar. Well, didn't Mike? Didn't you build their Puma? Yeah, I did build their Puma. But that kid's older. That kid's a lot older. That kid's from the 70s. Yeah. 
that one you kind of knew what you're getting into. I mean, you get one of these new, like the, it's the Panther, the Tiger Tank that's got the the cheesy little half engine you drop in the back, and and the the turret split along stupid lines, and the tracks are four pieces, and yeah, you're and, talking uh, about kits that are twice as old as I am, so yeah. <laughs> He <laughs> did it going a little deeper. <laughs> I was going to say he did it again, Mike. <laughs> I hope you come to nationals, man. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've all established what we won't build, so we're going to spin. spin we're going to spin the wheel, man. Tools. Okay. What about them? I don't mean rude people. <laughs> <laughs> we could go on at length about that. that that's right. Okay. Yeah. How, what's the what's the most recent tool you purchased, Dave? Uh, the display uh, uh, hand stabilizer, and I'm still playing with it. But so far, I see its usefulness. Uh, I I completely surprised by it i wouldn't have known anything about it were it not for one of our listeners bringing it to my attention and um i i think particularly for people like me with the the congenital tremors the essential tremors it it can be uh very helpful what's the worst tool you ever bought worst tool i ever bought okay not necessarily the worst tool I ever bought, but the the thing that I bought recently that that doesn't doesn't live up to what I wanted. I bought a stand called a Flight Pro stand, and in fact, I didn't even know the name until uh, Darren at uh, at the Model Geeks told me who made it. And unfortunately, uh, I bought it at the Nationals. I like it; it's really useful. Uh, most of the photos you see of the Kate. It's resting on that. Apparently, that company is having trouble getting stock in because it's manufactured over uh, in China or somewhere in that area, and they're having trouble. But I found something on Amazon that is similar, and so I purchased it thinking that, well, this looks similar. It will be you know, similarly useful, but unfortunately, it's not uh, the the end caps. The silicone end caps are not the same as the ones on the Flight Pro thing, and the arms, the adjustable arms that you adjust to get to the point where you're going to sit your model down on it, are about twice as long, and so your model is hovering way up in space off the table. And so if it were to slip off this stand, uh, the chances of it getting damaged are much greater. So it just not, not nearly what I was looking for. Spent a little money, learned a lesson. Evan, what's your favorite tool or the most recent one you bought? Well, uh, my, most, my most useful tool, which I recently bought, are my Dispay single blade nippers. Because previously I was using the Tamiya seven four one two three, I think they are the the standard cutters, which are pretty good. They're they're fine on their own, but the single blade nippers that Dispay makes here and the equivalent other brands, they just they cut 
much cleaner and there's a lot less sanding to do afterwards. That's definitely a benefit. Yes. I also, uh, a most recent tool I've got is, uh, I shall, I'll have a couple here. I'll go, I'll be quick though. I've got a hobby Mio, which is a brand from Indonesia. I, I, maybe the Philip, I don't know. Some, somewhere in East Asia that isn't China or Japan hobby Mio. Uh, these are anti-static tweezers and they're really good at holding things. So they're really good for placing photo etch without it pinging away. So I really like these. Hmm. And the truly most recent thing I've got, because I haven't actually used it yet is black super glue and debonder. <laughs> black super glue is fantastic. Yes. Very, very useful. You, once you use that, you will be you will find yourself wondering how you ever used regular super glue. Yep. And the debonder, I mean, I haven't used it yet, but I got that because after watching Martin's videos, he Ding. makes that seem like it's yeah, it's the third time I mentioned him already. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> he makes it seem like it's a very useful tool for cleaning up the excess and you always end up with a little bit of extra CA somewhere and you have to kind of scrape it off. It's a pain in the butt. So this might help make everything a little cleaner in the in the photo etch. Is it the VMS stuff? Yeah, these are both VMS. Okay. The VMS debonder, I am here to tell you. I ha- I ordered Mike and I did a VMS order together and I got the debonder and I I've used it. It works exactly as advertised. Perfect. Easy to clean up the excess and does not affect the bond of the part to the uh, the super glued part at all. Well, Evan, what's your worst or most disappointing tool? Off-brand exacto blades from a number eleven <laughs> knife <laughs> from from China, right? From somewhere, I don't know if it was even that level of quality. <laughs> I've I've got a box of a hundred that I wish I hadn't bought myself. Yeah, I think they're I think they're the, they're the floor sweepings from exacto. <laughs> The leftover stampings from when they actually make the blades. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess it's my turn now. My most recent one I'm gonna is gonna be the the, the Form Three printer I bought, and of course, right now it's my favorite because it's brand new. And you know, it wasn't cheap. It was cheap for what it is versus paying retail for it. But uh, and my 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 self imposed rationale for that was I wanted to buy a tool, not another hobby. Yeah. Because I watched some of these guys tweaking these slicers and and the settings and all this stuff, and they're going back and forth, and it's like, man, I don't want any part of that. So I'd, I'd use this this printer at work. We have two of them, just like it at work. So almost no learning curve. I knew exactly what I was getting into. The user interface is super easy. It does everything for you, or you can edit it what it did for you to do it yourself, or you can start from scratch, like with the support structure and stuff. I got this thing in. My brother shipped it up here to me. I had it out of the box and and ready to go in like 15 minutes. I mean, that's hooked onto the net, my network and everything. Ready to go. And I had a print on it within hours of that. And it came out fine. So <laughs> that's a tool. That's not a hobby. So hopefully we'll get, get to see a lot more use of this thing. I'm, I'm going to be certainly using it on the Ray Botan project. And uh, who knows what else? I don't know yet. Uh, Evan, go ahead and start uh, making a list of things you need Mike to both design and print for you for future projects. Maybe if you can find some files for for 
uh, 3D printed tracks, maybe he can and print a bunch oh, of those yeah, for perfect. you. <laughs> I will give it a shot. <laughs> All right, Mike, what's your uh, what's your least useful tool? Don't say me. <laughs> I, I tell you, it's kind of a collective of, of several hand tools. I think just about, uh, I don't even, can't assign a percentage to it. 75% of the, of the small hand tools I've ever bought from uh, Micromark. Yes. Micromark branded stuff. Has always just things you don't end up using. You don't mean? end up using and they're yeah. not, they're not that great to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just, it's, I, I got a chisel from them that I don't like. I've got some, uh, before these, uh, single edge anvil type sprue cutters came out, all, all the rave was these little, uh, cutting tweezers. Yeah. The they're, squ- squeeze snippers. They're really made for, or for cutting tissue and small bone on like when you're working with lab rats and stuff, they're, they're for laboratory tissue cutting and bone cutting is what they're really for. And Utica is a is a Swiss maker of of tweezers, and they had a had some that some model railroad company was making, and those were all the rage. And I, I got some of those, and then I saw Micromark had some for like you know a third of the price or even less. And uh, I got those, and they're so stiff you can hardly close them four or five times for your hand needs to rest, and and uh, they're, they're bigger, so you couldn't get a fine cut. They just they just weren't the same thing. They, it, clearly, they just capitalized on a trend. And made a knockoff, and it it sucked. And again, there's probably two or three others that I, I've bought that just never live up to to the expectation. So that's what those are. Mike, I can remind you of one. What's that? Do you remember your conversation with John McIntyre about tweezers? Oh yeah, don't buy cheap tools. Don't buy cheap tools, particularly cheap tweezers, because <laughs> you get tweezers that don't the, the, match the, up. The tips don't match, and yeah. Uh, the, you know, some of the inexpensive tweezers have gotten better since then, but. Uh. Yeah, my go-to pair of tweezers for the past five years before I got these Hobby Mio ones was a pair of tweezers that are like no brand on them. And I got them for two bucks at the uh, the 27, 2017 show in Chicago, whatever, the the World Expo. And they, they've held up really well. I like, drop them on the floor and everything and they bend, they just bend it back. Like, yeah. They've held up well, but I've got countless tools that just sit in the back like when you mentioned your micro mark tools i was looking in the back here at all the like i've got like pallet knives and <laughs> tweezers and pliers and stuff i never use i've got a i've got a red testers tube glue i don't, wa- I don't know why <laughs> but, but by the by the same token evan when you need a particular tool yeah. You know, there might be a tool. I've got lots of them. I'm a tool freak. I, I'm I'm a sucker for the latest and greatest tool. Yeah. But, you know, there are plenty of tools that I may use once a year or once every two years. But when you need that particular tool, there's nothing else that will do. Yes. All right. We beat that one to death. Time to spin the wheel. Ooh, kit prices. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> Too much, not enough. Disparities. There's a lot of those. Let me start first, then I'll let you two talk about armor, because armor's <laughs> a completely different world. Right. In, in kit prices in aircraft, yeah, there are some, especially high-end manufacturers, new kits, uh, 
Um, you know, Dora Wings jumps out at you. 72nd scale Pilatus Turbo Porter, $55 for a single engine, not that big transport aircraft. You know, there, there are some manufacturers that just, I mean, they're, they're high quality, but they're not cheap. Um, although then again, they're a uh, clear prop. Again, they make some great stuff. They're Sonya, they're A5M4. It's not overpriced. I'm not going to argue it, but it's not super inexpensive. But then again, the, in the aircraft world, we have manufacturers like Airfix. Their new stuff, at least until the, the recent price rises because of the price of oil and the price of shipping. I mean, when the Airfix P-51 came out, it was you could pick it up for $6.95. It was ridiculously inexpensive for a really good kit. Um, now, that's not the case anymore. They're like $14 or something like that. But that's still... I can get, I, you know, if I've got a, a 12 or a 15-year-old kid who's interested in the hobby, $12 Airfix kits, buildable as heck, not going to give them any problems, going to be happy with what comes, what the finished kit is like, and and it doesn't break the bank. And I, I can't complain about the vast majority of aircraft model kit prices, at least in 72nd scale. Now, some of the 48th and some of the 32nd scale, there are some wallet benders out there. That 32nd scale border models Lancaster, which I think retails around $700. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> but then again, you know, as, as I emphasize to my beloved spouse all the time, in, in comparison to other hobbies, this hobby is incredibly, even at the higher end, is incredibly inexpensive value for the dollar. Because if you buy that Border Models Lancaster, that's now there are guys out there who are going to knock it out in a week, I'm sure, somewhere. But, <laughs> you know, for most normal human beings, you know, that's six months or nine months of modeling. And that's that's a lot of value for, for the money involved. Yeah, so it's not much golf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or or bass fishing, where you know, you know, you're th- you're starting out with a twenty five thousand dollar bass boat. You know, we all whine about prices from time to time, but you know, for the mo- for the vast most part, really we got nothing to complain about. Evan? You want to talk about armor? Yeah, well, like I said before, I've only been building kits for about eight years, so I don't know how it was back in the, you know, the seventies or whatever you were talking about before. (laughs) He twisted the knife again. I know. I'm just teasing, but when I started, I seem to remember um, that you could get a a nice, a nice brand new because Dragon was still putting out new kits at the time, but nice new Dragon Panzer three kit for like thirty five to 50 Canadian was a good price. And now they're more like twice that. Uh, and uh, I mean, other kits like you can with like a Ryfield models and everybody else who shows up on the block. Now their kits are, they're not a hundred dollars now here. They're, they're more like maybe 60 to 70. 
80 maybe, but they come with 3D printed accessories and the tracks are the workable. So you, you don't have to spend extra money with some of the details on there. Metal barrels. Track. Oh yeah, metal barrels, good point. And the decals I'm- are usually good enough. You don't need aftermarket decals. So it's, they're definitely getting more expensive, but you're also getting more bang for your buck. Now, I understand there's also people out there who might not like that because it's quite complicated putting together all these tracks and stuff and you like rubber band tracks. But, I mean, those people, I imagine they can still find Tamiya kits and everything else that uh, that fit their bill. What do you think, uh, Mike? You know, the, the prices on some of these, these re-releases on these Dragon kits is a little yeah. staggering. I don't. But those aren't new kits. It's a new box. <laughs> it's a new box, a 10-year-old kit with less photo etch. And they've kind of wrecked the box art because they've only taken, you know, the the very minimum of the, like the Ron Volstead artwork and yeah. put all this splash color and all these geometric shapes behind it instead of the entire thing, right? So, Oh, yeah. When I, when I first started, half the reason I bought a Dragon kit, because I didn't, I didn't know anything about the brands, but it was the Ron Volstead box art that always caught my eye those things are beautiful speaking of which uh ron volstead's birthday was yesterday oh well then happy <laughs> birthday mr volstead there you go uh evan you made a good point that i didn't even think about when talking about kits and kit prices you know it used to be back in the old times when the dinosaurs roamed the earth and mike <laughs> and i were just starting modeling you bought the kit and then you would spend on aftermarket, separate photo etch, separate decal sheet, separate aircraft interior. But the trend now is for these manufacturers, either Edward with their expert set or uh, Arma with their expert set, you open up the box, you've got a cartograph decal sheet that is going to be as good as anything you're going to buy aftermarket with, you know, six, seven, different choices. You've got photo etch. You may have some resin inside. So at least part of the price that you're paying for that is stuff that you would have had to go out and or probably had to go out and acquire separately. So, you know, at least some of that price rise is justified given what you're getting in the in the box. Back to prices generally, another outlier that I don't understand is Italeri. Yeah. Some some of their kits are really expensive and I just <laughs> and they're just not as good as everybody else's. No, I there there is something something weird about them. Yes. Cuz it's the same way with their aircraft kits. And I do not understand what it is. And yet if you if you get lucky enough that Tamiya reboxes it, you can pick it up for what's a normal what we would consider a more acceptable price and for for the high end stuff some of the mini art kits give me a little heartburn but I'll probably still end up with them cuz I, I I agree with you Dave that in in the grand scheme of things it's not terrible no expensive hobby and I just you know you can find stuff a long time out so I don't have to rush in and throw all those in the stash at once so so I tell myself yeah <laughs> All right, spin it again.
Is there a correct color? No. Next next spin. <laughs> Evan? I don't know. I mean, when people build their own things on Facebook and whatever, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> well, I mean, when it comes to my own my own builds, I I fret about the details and about like I kind of rivet count myself. But I don't really care if you make your Panzer Gray blue. I mean, I might kind of go like, well, that doesn't quite look how I would do it. But whenever somebody does a blue Panzer Gray, you know, it, they still weather it really well, and it looks it's a it's an interesting piece in the end. That's all that matters. I, I think for me, it's I try to find a ballpark color. And then once you weather it, it's going to shift it up or down anyway. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't, I don't get the point. Yeah. I don't get the point of the dead match. Or uh, that's a true point because there's not only like I was t- more like ballparking and like oh don't make your Panzer gray blue or whatever like people talk about, but like some people are really really like you know you got to make your Panzer gray like exactly this, but then you put dust and everything else on it and you give it a matte varnish or a gloss varnish. And it completely changes. So you have to kind of factor all that in so that if you're aiming for that point, you're there at the end after the wash, the varnish, everything else you're doing. And and it's also like when you look at a picture of a – like we all know like, okay, maybe the vehicle was supposed to be this color. But you look at a photo and it's covered in dust. Like you're kind of like is it – it's it's very hard to nail down. Like you're, if you're going for it covered in dust, maybe it doesn't matter so much. And if if, you're, if your reference is covered in dust, how are you aiming for that specific color underneath with such accuracy? It's like like you said, David. This is a touchy subject. <laughs> but one of my favorite examples, Mike, uh, as he's mentioned previously. Is collects military. He has a lot of uh, uniform pieces. The variation in color of German field gray or American olive drab or whatever is fascinating. It is just, I mean, the the spread is so wide. You wouldn't believe you wouldn't take the two colors on the end and you wouldn't assign the same name, olive drab or field gray, to the colors on the end of that uniform spectrum. An- another point that's kind of interesting that it, it harkens back to when I was decorating a lot of model railroad equipment. We get these guys that would, would fret or try to match a color for a certain railroad, like a yellow, and they'd They'd get the get the color what they thought was the right color, you know, the perfect color yellow, and they'd mask off their model and they'd they'd paint the nose swooshes or stripes or whatever. But then they go take a decal sheet <laughs> that's already pre-printed in a yellow that's got the road name or the herald or something on it, and they put it on the model. Now all those yellows should match because they're all painted yeah. at the paint shop at the same time, and they didn't. And they would ask me on, on my subject, what, what color yellow did you use? I was like, oh, I mixed it myself. And they said, well, what's your reference? I said, my reference was putting a test decal over the color of paint I was going to paint the basic model. And I matched that yellow. So all my crap would match at the end, whether it was the right yellow or not. Right. Yep. <laughs> it, it, it all looked the same. <laughs> but typically, I don't fret. 
I aim for a ballpark that looks about right, and it's going to weather up or down one way or the other. And, and I, is there? Yeah. Are you going to chase these RAL colors or these federal standard numbers? Yeah. To the T. That's just a that's a starting point for me. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and and you can do that. You can say, okay, I want FS thirty six four ninety five. Okay, because that's a good starting point color. But and even if that's what supposedly the the prototype was actually painted in, you know, you can want a paint that's that's as close as you can can get to thirty six four ninety five. But given everything that modelers do between modeling and shading and pre-shading and post-shading and weathering, you know, if it happens to be a little bit off of 36495 to begin with, it doesn't make any difference by the time the model's done. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're in the ballpark and you're right. happy with your model at the end, you know, Yeah. I mean, I, I was joking about the Panzer Gray being blue, but I, when I last did my last German Gray tank, I lightened the Panzer Gray with a bunch of XF-18 medium blue yeah. so that it would then weather back down to a nice gray. But, you know, I put I put blue at Panzer Gray, sue me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Spin again. Yeah. Large scale. Okay. <laughs> I think this one was my suggestion. <laughs> well, you get to go first then. In aircraft, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand 124th scale. Uh, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of model. That's a lot of model. I understand 32nd scale barely, although, again, when you get back to the border models, Lancaster and 32nd scale... That's a hunk and freaking big model when you're done. You know, you better <laughs> some people would have to build a room edition to to store it when they're finished with it. But the the reason I suggested this was one sixteenth scale tank kits. Yeah. I don't here's my difficulty with them. I have rarely seen a 116th scale tank kit built up that didn't have some toy-like aspect to it. It's like both with in aircraft or armor or any subject. There seems to be a limit at which if you blow it up beyond that point, it no longer looks like a model. It looks more like a toy or a uh, a museum representation, and yeah, there's like an uncanny valley. That I, that's it, that, Evan. That's that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. There is an uncanny valley at a certain size where it doesn't look right, and 16th scale armor is that thing for me and 24th scale aircraft is that thing for me now with cars who knows maybe it's one sixth scale or what maybe with figures it's you know one quarter whatever there is a scale for each subject at which 
it hits that uncanny valley. Go ahead, Evan. I think it depends on the subject because at our auto show that was here a month ago, there were one of the, one of my local buddies here. He had a motorcycle he'd done in like one quarter scale, like like not one forty eighth, like one right. to four scale, and that thing looked like it was a real motorcycle for a gnome or something like <laughs> it looked so good. And it was almost like a labor of love. Cause he was into motorcycles and one-to-one scale. And he'd put all the detail into that. Right. And when it comes to one sixteen scale armor, um, I mean, when I saw John Bonani's one sixteen scale sugar at the Nats, that looked really, really good. And it'd be hard pressed to tell that apart from a one thirty fifth scale. If you just saw a picture of it based on how well he painted and weathered it. With the 116 scale armor, I think it mainly comes down to some of the kits themselves are almost like they just took the 135th scale and blew it up and didn't add any extra detail in terms of the rivets and the welds and everything. So so that kind of blobbiness of some details is much more apparent when it's uh, twice as big. That's, that's um, a but, good point. But also, when it comes to the big 116 scale kits, I also don't – I don't find them attractive – because they'd be so big, they would take up my, well, they would exceed my one scale or my one square foot of clear bench space, first of all. <laughs> and where would I put them? They're going to each, each take up one block of my detolf shelf where I can otherwise put five or six tanks. I, I envy uh, you if you have one square foot of, of <laughs> model bench space. I wish, I, I wish I've got like eight and a half by 11 of clear, yeah. clear building space. <laughs> On a 13-foot bench. I, I tell you, though, it looks like this scale's going somewhere with Andy's Hobby Headquarters. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I'll be anxious to really see these kits built up. I mean, I don't think they're for me just because of the size and the scope of the project. God, I think even Jim Bates bought this Sherman tank. He did. He did. And and I, I will tell you, 32nd uh, scale, 20 years ago, there was very little 32nd scale aircraft. And and it was all over the place. And if you go to an IPMS Nationals now, like going to Omaha, and you walk down the 32nd scale aircraft table, and there will be phantom after phantom after F-18 after F-15. And these are not small models, but there are a dedicated group of modelers who really really love that scale and uh i think that's why the that particular scale and aircraft has grown so much yeah when i'm at a show i think i spend the most time in terms of all the aircraft subjects i spend the most time looking at one thirty second scale jets mainly yeah because there's just there's so they're so big and usually people have got everything opened up and you can really see all that detail work that they've put in there. It's, I mean, it's, as an aerospace engineer, it's kind of like a fascinating thing for me. Right. So. And and I would say it's, it's somewhat equivalent to 35th scale tanks. The, the level of detail yeah. is very, very similar. You can cram a lot of detail or you can really go crazy with tool clamp working tool clamps and and stuff on 35th scale armor and with 32nd scale aircraft you can have the canopy opened up and all that cockpit detail and i think there's a little bit of a 
of an interest equivalent from the attraction to the eye standpoint. One one last thing I want to mention here is when it comes to the 116 scale armor, it can depend on the subject because I wouldn't build a 116 scale King Tiger, but I would build a 116 scale Panzer One or the the Japanese tankette that Tacom also makes because that that is roughly the same size as a 135th scale King Tiger. Like sure. it's it's not that big because that tank is a two person tankette. It's right. It's kind of in the same ballpark as a very large 35th scale. So there's a there's quite a wide range. I guess same thing with the aircraft. Like you could build the the border models 32nd scale Lancaster, and of course that's way bigger than a a Phantom or even a a World right. War II fighter. Be much smaller than a Phantom. Yeah. Mike, one more. We're gonna try one more. Wait a minute. What yeah. did you say about scale? Did you comment? I just thought that Andy's hobby headquarters was gonna. That's right. It's a it's a bender to the genre. I think we're gonna see some really nice kits and uh, some nice figures to go with them. And I, again, it's probably not for me in that at that size, just because of the project scope. But I'm I'm real curious to see where this goes. All right, spin it one more time. You pick it. <laughs> oh, perfect. Po- what are we closing with? Evan, go. Okay, so while I was at the dentist, I was listening to the first episode you guys ever had of Plastic Model Mojo oh, because God. you guys kept making fun of my early YouTube videos when I was on here last. So I never made fun of them. I think they're great. <laughs> you mentioned it and it well, made me embarrassed, I, so that's that counts. <laughs> I, mentioned, I mentioned it and you were definitely much younger then. Yes. But yes, I you, your fa- your videos have been great since the first one you ever dropped. But go yes. ahead. Well, your Mojo episodes have aged much better than that because you guys only started a couple of years ago. But you guys mentioned in the first episode something along the lines of when you're doing your faves and yawns that you would have an all-time fave or all-time yawn eventually. And that made me wonder, not you know, on a similar vein, has there ever been a fave that then became a yawn or vice versa, either when you saw the kit or bought the kit, built it? Maybe it was something you really were looking forward to when it was announced and you built it and it ended up being garbage. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, my, Mike's got one for this. I've got to say, in general, if it's a yawn for me, I never end up buying it. So True. I never yeah. end up having the, I mean, the Techcom Hannibal Nazi spacecraft <laughs> could be the best dang model ever made. I will never buy that kit. I will never build that kit. And if you put a gun to my head and made me, I would, no matter how well it went together, no matter how detailed it was, I would still never think. It was anything but a yawn. Yeah, pull the trigger. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mike? Oh, yeah. Evan won't remember, but Dave will. Before Dragon ever released a T-34. So, all you had was basically Tamiya. Right. With the the empty sponsons. Mm -hmm. And then maybe at about the same time Zvezda was coming around, and they had... Some really their first T thirty four kits weren't weren't all that great either. 
And then RPM Maquette came out with his T3485. That was the first one that had the, had the Christie suspension, right? Had the, you know, the, the, the arcing slots in the side of the hull with the springs behind them and had full sponsons, had hollow engine louvers on it and and all these great features. Oh man. But the kit required so much. And I had like three or four of those things in my stash at one time. And it's like, it was the greatest thought is the greatest thing ever. Cause this, this thing was parsed out the way you built up the hull and, and the, and the, the upper hull is just, it was, it's more like a real tank, like the T-34. You could, it had all this potential to open up the back and do all this stuff without all the work that Tamiya kits took. And plus it was shaped better, but sink marks, flash, short shots. I mean, just everything that you could get in Eastern European kit in the mid, mid, mid to late nineties was in those kits. I mean, they were just, you really had to want to build it. And I think I've, I've got one left that I swear I'm going to use the hull out of as some sort of twisted nostalgia build. But those turned into a yawn real fast. After I started getting, getting into one of those to actually build a T-34 based on their parts, it's like, man, this thing is terrible. Big yawn. <laughs> Evan? Uh, Dragon's... T-34 in Stalingrad, 1942. <laughs> Wait a minute. Isn't that, I, isn't that what you're building now? <laughs> no, I'm building the 1941. <laughs> oh, world of difference. There it, it is. Actually it's is. one that fits together. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <'Cause laughs> I, I didn't know any better because I bought that uh, that kit. I bought the German boxing of it uh, with the Panzer III turret bit on the back and everything. But it's the same kit in the end. I bought that because I really wanted to build that, you know, the iconic – the iconic Stalingrad T-34 is the 42 model, which has the chiseled gun manlet, and it's got this much uh, simplified turret and steel interlocking wheels. welds and the steel wheels and everything like that. And I was like, yes, I can finally build it. I got the kit for a decent price. And then it just, the upper hull doesn't fit. <laughs> it's like, what What are you going to do? So that thing is a pain wheel for me. <laughs> like, I, I just, I just, I was just immediately lost all mojo when the kit, the two critical parts of the hull just do not go together not at all i mean well they can but it's a lot of you got to know where to, to yeah, massage a lot of it. flexing of plastic yeah, involved uh, <laughs> i can't remember it's it's been done before but yeah it's I, I want someone to redo that because that's the like the iconic t-34 is the stalingrad desperation like that symbolizes what the russians went through or the soviets went through in that war this 1942 Stalingrad vehicle is the symbol of of their struggle and eventual overcoming. Like this tank is bare bones, you but want it, it still works. You want it coming out of the factory unpainted, right? Effectively, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but there's no kit to make that properly. This 41 that I'm building is a much better kit. It's not perfect, but you can actually build it, and I've been enjoying it. But it doesn't have the chiseled gun mantlet and the interlocking wells. Like it's not. It's not the epitome. Well, it's not an epitome when it's when it's so simplified as that thing is. But it's. I kind of wonder, given the renaissance that we are currently experiencing with the uh, with the Stug. Now there are currently a lot of T thirty four kits out there, and a yes. lot of good T thirty four kits out there, but there are apparently, like you're mentioning about the Stalingrad forty two. Uh, 
T-34, there are still a lot of holes to be filled. I kind of wonder if we're going to, at some point, experience the same thing with T-34s that we did with Stugs. A lot of these companies have done the uh, a lot of the 85 millimeter. Like, right. There's been a lot of the versions. Yeah. Rifle Models done a bunch of those recently. They're kind of working their way back, so I'm hoping that they're going to do this 76 because I find the T-34 85 to be not exactly an attractive vehicle, much like I find the Stug 4 to be an unattractive vehicle. While I love the Stug 3, I love the the small turret 76 millimeter T-34, but I don't like the 85. So, Have, have you ever seen a T-34 85 in person? Yeah, we got one at our local museum. Okay. There was one, now there they've moved all the armor down to Fort Benning in Georgia, but mm-hmm. when it was all up here at Fort Knox, there was a Korean War T-34-85 in the museum that had voids in the turret casting yeah. that were so big you could put your fist into them. Yeah. And it was, there's no way to to tell somebody how rough that casting was it was just amazing and i've always always thought you would want to do that but god it would be really hard work to 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 put that kind of cast texture texture on that turret all right we've covered a lot of ground that was kind of fun that was i did enjoy the the wheel of Wheel of whatever. The, the wheel, wheel of, of misfortune. The wheel, wheel of, of misfortune. misfortune. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Maybe that's it. That's it. Congratulations. The wheel of misfortune. I like that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's have another sponsor break and we'll get back with our modeling fluid wrap up. You got it. Getting the right size base for your model, diorama, or vignette can be difficult and time-consuming. Bases by Bill has the solution with their all-new custom size display bases. Offering sizes of 4 to 30 inches and any size in between, you choose the dimensions you want and you get the size you need every time. They can also be laser engraved with a unit emblem or custom text of your choice. In addition, shipping is always included within the lower 48 states. Built by modelers for modelers, Bases by Bill has bases and display cases for any type of model and for any size. Visit their website at basesbybill.com to see their new products or to get your own custom-built base or display case quote. Use the code MOJO at checkout to apply a 10% listener discount to your order. That code again is MOJO for 10% off. Bases by Bill for all your model display needs. Well, guys, we're getting close to the end. Uh, uh, I assume that our modeling fluids are all just about empty. Uh, Evan, what can you report about your modeling fluid? As I've had before, as I've had this before, I loved it. It's a great, I mean, if you're into, like you said, the thicker beers, uh, Irish stout, cream stout, uh, this is definitely a, a good one. I, I like it cause it has that kind of brown sugary note to it and the vanilla. So it's definitely up my alley, but. I just love this stuff. This might be one of my favorite beers I've ever had, actually. The, the salted caramel was so good, but yeah. Well, good. Thumb, that's a big thumbs up. So, Mike, uh, how about you? Well, the Bell's Too Hard is a revisit. Not on this show, though, but I've, I've had this quite a bit before. Uh, it's a, it's an American IPA, and it's, it's pretty well balanced. You know, it's like a lot of these microbrews try to out-hop each other. 
Yes. And this one's well-balanced, and it does not have the hops variety, which I've yet to identify, that seems to give me an allergic reaction. Good. Good stuff. Bell's too hard a deal. And you, Dave? Well, I can tell you the Huffbrow House Hefeweizen, it's about 5.5% alcohol by volume. Uh, If you get it fresh from the tap in a growler from the restaurant, it is a pleasure. It's, It's so drinkable that you simply wouldn't stop. Uh, It's almost like the equivalent of drinking a non-alcoholic drink. Uh, But of course, this contains alcohol. So at some point, it will hit you in the face like a frying pan. But it's it's the most enjoyable beer that I drink. And it is very, very good that I don't live in Newport, Kentucky, anywhere near the the restaurant, because... This would be my downfall. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. We're at the end of the episode. Do we have some shout outs? Uh, Mike, do you have a shout out? I've got a shout out. I've got one. I'm going to shout out Rob Booth for looking totally dapper as the, uh, the swag model for the IPMS USA in the, in the, (laughs) in the most current, uh, IPMS journal. I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's give me a shirt so I can look like Rob Booth. There you go. Evan, do you have a shout out? Yes, I'm going to shout out Stephen Reed from the T34 modeling group on Facebook. I'm sure you're well aware of him, Mike, as he was. Uh, you mentioned him in the last episode, and I probably should actually give him a shout out last episode because it was more topical then. But he sent me Master Club. Uh, tracks for my t34 that i'm building the stalingrad one because there's a specific type of track for that vehicle and only master club makes it and master club tracks are made in russia so you can't get them anymore so he sent me these tracks for free so i can build my t34 and he also gave me a a, a good link to a good company that makes aftermarket fuel tanks for the vehicle as well so he basically you know gave me the critical parts for my t34 build here and uh, appreciate it. And the T34 modeling group on Facebook is excellent for people who like to build that vehicle. Well, Stephen was one of our early guests. So dig back through the back catalog there mm-hmm. first year and uh, yeah. you'll find an interview with Stephen. Uh, speaking of which, uh, in regard to fuel tanks, are you using the round ones or the the box ones? They're the boxy ones that are strapped to the hull sides as uh, they were on the early vehicles. See, that's the thing. You 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 know, I guess from the Tamiya kit, you always think of the the round ones, the barrel shaped yeah. ones. But almost all of the photographs you see from the nineteen forty one and nineteen forty two of T thirty fours all have the the box ones. Yeah. And yet you you almost never see those modeled. And it, I, I guess it's just because they don't look as cool. I find them to be a little unique. So I'm excited to do them my first time doing them on this vehicle with the proper resin set, which I think is from Bitskrieg. Bitskrieg. I like that name. <laughs> they look pretty detailed. That's a great name. My shout out is to our friends at ICM who 
despite the fact that they're in a war zone, uh, managed to keep their commitment, and they have released the seventy-second, the first of their seventy-second scale uh, Ki twenty-one Sallies, which is a kit that has been desperately needed in the seventy-second scale community forever. And uh, I've already got one on order. And guys, uh, you know, I know circumstances are tough over there. Shout out to you for continuing to, uh, despite all of the all of the difficulties you're struggling under, continuing to keep your commitments and release continue to release kits. Way to go! Keep it up. Keep going, Slava Ukraina. All right, guys. Well, this is going to be a, a long ish one. Ish ish. It's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we probably ought to wrap it up. So, Evan, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. It's always so much fun to be on with you guys. All right. Well, we'll have you back again, I'm sure, and uh, flesh out this, uh, what'd you call it? The Wheel Wheel of of Misfortune. Wheel of Misfortune again. Maybe some listener-solicited topics. That would be good. A modeling-centric name would be a little better, I think. Okay, listeners, if you're out there, now that we've exhausted like five of the topics on the wheel, we need replacements for the next time we do this. So send us suggestions. And also, if you come up with a really good name for the Wheel of Misfortune, we'll use it and we'll give you all sorts of credit. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, as we always say, so many kits. So little time. All right, guys. Take it easy. Take it easy.